I, uh, I love, like the most relaxing thing in the world to me, is to be in the wood shop. Uh, I just really enjoy uh, tinkering. Uh, not even necessarily building anything, just tinkering. Uh, and like as uh, kids have become part of the equation for me and, and joined me in the wood shop, at first I was kind of excited about that. Uh, and, and then experience taught me. Yeah. Uh, I, I do enjoy having them out there. I don't enjoy them messing with my stuff, but uh, one of the things that's amazed me about uh, children in the shop is their ability to use a tool basically for anything except the thing that it's intended to be used for. Uh, like anything can be a hammer. Uh, everything is a hammer, uh, right? Like, uh, and sometimes they do, uh, you know, what they do is damaging to the thing that they're using, and other times what they're doing is actually damaging uh, to the tool that they're using. And uh, like I was thinking about that this week uh, as we turn to the Jerusalem Council. Uh, as, you know, we've talked about, uh, as we've been looking at the Gospel's progression with the Gentiles, uh, how Paul and Barnabas are regularly confronting idolatry, uh, right? They're coming out of the context of sharing the gospel in uh, Jewish places or with primarily Jewish people and kind of stepping into very much a pagan idolatry. Uh, but then in chapter 15, kind of confronted with this uncomfortable truth where there's some people that have turned to Christ or at least uh, people who seem to have turned to Christ who have kind of made an idol out of the law of God. And uh, as this confrontation uh, comes up uh, in the church as the church works through this issue uh, and then uh, in the aftermath of this really through the rest of the New Testament see that there's this struggle consistently between uh, people who uh, have placed their trust in Jesus Christ and other people uh, who are trusting in Christ but struggling to understand uh, the relationship between the law and the life of the believer. And so I'd like to go through the Jerusalem Council in, in two parts and uh, explore uh, what, uh, what exactly is happening here and what relevance does it have today. Uh, and I'm going to start this morning with kind of the setup to the Jerusalem Council and then the initial deliberation uh, found in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 15, there we read, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting to God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of, that, of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes the things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray. God, you are gracious to your people and Lord, we see your grace daily, and we receive your grace eagerly in Christ, and God, even as recipients of your grace, God, we often fail to uh, comprehend its magnitude, its, its weight, and God, we pray this morning that as we worship you and we uh, turn to your word, God, that we would feel uh, the weight of your grace. God, even as we read about people uh, struggling to comprehend uh, the magnitude of your grace, God, we pray that you would help us to see uh, areas where it has uh, failed to penetrate our thinking, failed to penetrate our beliefs, and God, that we would eagerly turn these things over to you, and that uh, we would be uh, people who appreciate, people who rest in the fact, God, that uh, your greater grace is greater than we can uh, understand or even imagine. And God, we pray that uh, you would make that evident to us now by giving us a deeper understanding of your word by your spirit. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would do the same thing uh, in 
our sister churches as they gather to worship this morning. God, that you would uh, continue uh, building uh, churches in our area that uh, seek to dwell in the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, that submit themselves to your word, that have a heart to see our area of reach for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, that uh, you would continue to build amongst these churches a, a spirit of unity and a, a recognition that we are not building our own kingdoms. God, we are laborers in your kingdom, working for the glory of your church and ultimately for you. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, we left off in chapter 14 with uh, Paul and Barnabas remaining for some time in Antioch, and we don't really know how long they were there, maybe as long as a year, but at some point, uh, news probably about their first missionary journey uh, had gotten back to Judea, and some people in the Jerusalem church decide enough is enough. You know, if there's a church in Antioch, that's one thing, but if the church in Antioch is spawning other Gentile churches that are, uh, you know, definitely not on our page with the role of the law of Moses, then, then we need to go up there and, and set things straight. And though it's, it's never really said in this text, I think it's pretty heavily implied that these people were doing this of their uh, own accord, right? Like earlier, Barnabas had been sent by the Jerusalem church to the church in Antioch. Earlier prophets had come from the Jerusalem church to the church in Antioch, but these guys seem to have just decided, we need to go up to Antioch and, and set them straight. We need, we need to, to settle this matter once and for all. Like We can't have people running around saying that they follow Jesus, but not observing the law of Moses. That's going to create all kinds of problems. And so uh, these guys come up to Antioch and inform the church in Antioch, that, well, we're glad that you've taken this first step in believing in Jesus, but uh, salvation is not quite finished for you yet. You need to be uh, circumcised, and uh, ultimately they'll say you need to obey the law of Moses, right? You don't just need to trust in Christ. Essentially, you need to convert to Judaism. You need to do all the things that an observant Jew would do. And I think you probably imagine uh, if some people, uh, some people uh, that you thought like, well, these people probably know what's going on. They're from the church in Jerusalem, came into the church and said like, well, here's the thing. What, what you're believing is not quite the whole gospel. It's a good start, but there's some other stuff that needs to happen if you're really going to be saved, right? This is uh, probably a very tense moment for the church uh, in Antioch, and thankfully, uh, Paul and Barnabas immediately see the threat to the gospel and uh, say, no, 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 right? Like, that, this is not the case. There is, Luke says, no small dissension or debate, right? So th this is a, uh, that's probably a polite way of saying this is a, this is a row. There's a, a real disagreement about this, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, who are you guys? What? No, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and they're going back and forth, and uh, the church in Antioch uh, 
seems to uh, reject the idea that they need to obey the law of Moses, but appreciate this really needs to be settled, right? Like, we have to be sure about what the gospel of is. And so they commissioned Paul and Barnabas to again go back to Jerusalem with some others. And uh, Luke never tells us who the others are, depending on how you match up the chronology of some of the events Paul relates in the letter to the Galatians with the book of Acts. Uh, it's probably likely that Titus uh, is along with them, a Gentile believer who is not circumcised. And they go down to Jerusalem to kind of settle once and for all. Uh, how do we how do we think about uh, Gentiles and the law of Moses? And on their way uh, to Jerusalem, they you know pass through Phoenicia and Samaria. They relate everything that's happening, and it it brings joy to the Christians in Phoenicia and Samaria that there are. Gentile, like thoroughly Gentile people in thoroughly Gentile places that are receiving Christ in faith. And I would think probably this is affirmation for Paul and Barnabas that, uh, you know, we're not wrong here, right? Like as they go church to church and people aren't saying, wait, you did what? And they're not circumcised? Like this is a problem, right? Like they're not, they're not hearing that. They're hearing people uh, exuberant that uh, there's the progress of the gospel among the Gentiles, but uh, the opinion of the churches in Phoenicia and Samaria is certainly not definitive. They need to go to Jerusalem and get the Jerusalem church's take on the whole situation. And so they get there. uh, And they're warmly received uh, in Jerusalem, which probably shouldn't uh, surprise. Remember their last visit to Jerusalem was bringing an offering uh, in the midst of a, a famine or an upcoming famine. But when they get there, uh, they declare all that God had done with them. Right? Note the similarity with the language uh, in chapter 14. They came back to the church in Antioch, and they related everything that God had done with them. Probably they give essentially the same missionary report here. They, they talk about everything that had happened on the first missionary journey, how Gentiles had come to faith, and as they're relating this, some of the believers uh, who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, it could be that these are other guys who didn't make it to Antioch. It could be that these are the same people that went to Antioch and started this problem in the first place, and that they also had already returned to Jerusalem. Probably uh, it could be both, right? Like that this party of Pharisees who were professing faith in Jesus Christ was much larger than the group who traveled to Antioch. But uh, there are some people, Pharisees by persuasion, uh, that are now professing faith in Christ, and they stand up in the midst of the assembly and say, wait, 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 Uh, it's a non-negotiable. These Gentiles have to be circumcised, and they need to be keeping the law of Moses in order for them to be received into the church. And so the apostles and elders decide to consider the matter together. And as, as we'd said earlier, chapter 12, uh, at this point the apostles had kind of uh, seemed to hand some of the leadership off to uh, the elders of the Jerusalem church. Uh, Peter, because of the events uh, earlier, had kind of handed off his role to 
James the Just, Jesus' brother, but thankfully they're, they're all here and they can share their opinion on this very important question. And so, as Paul and Barnabas kind of state the situation, the Pharisees have stood up and uh, made their claim that obedience to the law of Moses is a non-negotiable. Uh, Peter reminds everybody, essentially, of what he had already told the Jerusalem church earlier. And, like, there aren't a lot of fixed dates and acts, but this is probably maybe as many as ten years after he's shared the gospel with Cornelius, but reminding the church uh, about some of the things that uh, he, or about what he had related to them earlier, that, uh, remember, God gave me a vision to go to Cornelius. At the same time, God was giving Cornelius a vision to, to send me, uh, or to get me. And God brought us together. I shared the gospel with Cornelius. Cornelius responds in faith. Right? That the uh, opening of the door of the gospel to the Gentiles was not something we decided to do on a whim. It is something that God led us to do. Right? Uh, God prompted me to share the gospel with Gentile. And remember that God didn't disapprove of this. This was very much God's will evidenced by the fact that God sent His Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. They receive the the fruit of salvation in the same way that we do because God's blessing is on the Gospel progressing amongst the Gentiles. We know that God is affirming this because of the evidence in the sending of the Holy Spirit. That... uh, that God didn't wait for Cornelius to be circumcised or Cornelius to become observant of the law of Moses in order to send his spirit. Uh, On faith, Cornelius received the Holy Spirit and it's now by faith that a person becomes a member of the family of God. And then he warns them uh, that the yoke uh, would be a, a colloquial way to refer to the law. Right? This, this yoke uh, that we never could bear prior to Jesus Christ, why on earth would you put that on the Gentiles? Right? You're not just doing them a disservice, you're putting God Himself to the test. Like God's already clearly signaled to us that it's by faith that a person's saved, and so why on earth would you uh, confuse the matter by indicating to some people that well, it's your obedience that earns you God's favor, right? Like we know that that's not the case. And just as we have believed and are saved, they also only need to believe on Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And probably, uh, I would think the Pharisees, the, the, the Pharisaical party here, though they have some respect for. Peter's judgment, maybe in their own minds, are thinking, well, okay, sure, Peter's saying all that, but, you know, Peter makes some questionable decisions, and Peter was acting on his own whim, and who can say what, what really happened, right? Like, what's everybody else have to say about this? And uh, so, like, with a pregnant pause, waiting for somebody else to speak, Paul and Barnabas again start relating what's happened with them, but this time their focus is on 
the signs and wonders that God had done, right? Like maybe the blinding of the uh, magician, maybe the healing of the lame man, but uh, again, further evidence that God was blessing the work. Right? There were miracles happening. If God didn't approve of what we were doing, then why on earth would He be fueling our mission by sending His Spirit and demonstrating His power in spectacular ways? And, uh, you know, if you're of the Pharisaical party and you hear Paul and Barnabas say this, you think, of course you're going to say it. Like, sit down, be quiet. We need to hear from these other people that have never left Jerusalem and, and the, you know, their opinions are more respectable. And then James the Just speaks. And uh, James, by all indications, uh, you know, he wasn't like Peter. He didn't wander out into uh, Gentile areas. Uh, James was observant of the law through and through. Uh, James has the credentials. And so James says, listen to me. And <clears throat> when James speaks, people listen. Certainly the Pharisees, I think, would have respected James's judgment, at least until he starts talking. Uh, and James lays out... <clears throat> uh, Pretty simple judgment. Right, Simeon, Peter, and you know, is he uh, maybe pastorally? He's using Peter's uh, Jewish name, right? Like uh, he related how God first visited the Gentiles, right? It wasn't Peter who visited the Gentiles; it was God through Peter visiting the Gentiles, and God is taking for Himself a people for His name, right? That. Uh, yeah, God worked through Peter, but it was God working, right? Like, God's clear working is the final word. And more than that, he says, uh, we should have known about this. Like, we should have saw this coming. He quotes almost directly from, well, basically directly, with a few alterations, uh, from Amos chapter 9. Uh, but notice he doesn't say... Uh, the word of the prophet, but he says, the words of the prophets. So he's quoting Amos chapter 9, but the way he's quoting Amos chapter 9 is uh, essentially that this is a good summary of things that prophets had told us over and over and over, right? Uh, that this is God's intention from the beginning. And not only uh, was it God's intention to include the Gentiles in his people, but it's part of God's plan to include the Gentiles to more fully restore our people, to restore the line of David. God has been working towards this end. He had made it known to us. We had misunderstood, but that doesn't change the fact that God has always been indicating that this was his plan as long as he's been talking to us, that God desires to include the Gentiles. And then he, he makes uh, kind of a, a summary judgment that they should not lay any precepts of the law upon uh, the Gentiles, that they should not ask the Gentiles to be circumcised, right? And imagine if you were Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile believer who traveled with Paul to Jerusalem <laughs> And you're just standing there while uh, these guys are debating whether or not you need to be circumcised, right? Like, it's pretty hard for me to imagine Titus isn't, like, standing in the corner, like, 
this could get really uncomfortable really quickly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> probably Titus, if no one else, uh, Titus breathes a sigh of relief when James utters these words. Right? Like, uh, no, don't trouble them with these things. But, but, let's ask for these four things. And uh, I, I want to I talk about these four things more next week. Right? Like if you read ahead in chapter 15, the, uh, the council is going to embrace James's proposal, uh, and uh, he'll restate these things, uh, send messengers to the church in Antioch, so uh, next week I'll, we'll talk about why these four things specifically, but uh, he does make some concessions when he's thinking about how Jews and Gentiles, how, like practically, how could Jews and Gentiles come together and there not be constant fighting and dissension in the church, right? He, he makes uh, some requests that the Gentile believers avoid certain things for the sake of the Jewish believers' consciences, uh, but they are not laying these things on the Gentile believers as if they have to do these things in order to earn God's acceptance. They're asking the Gentile believers to avoid doing these things for the sake of the conscience of the other Jewish believers in the church. Uh, and you know, he explains, essentially, that the, there are some things that are going to be really hard for Jewish believers. Right, Even if there is freedom from the law of Moses in the grace of Jesus Christ forever, like as long as there's been a law of Moses. There are some people in these churches who have been hearing, this is an offense to God, this is an offense to God, this is an offense to God, and those people aren't overnight going to be able to shut off the switch in their brain that I shouldn't do these things, right? So for the sake of peace, as Jews and Gentiles come together in the church of Jesus Christ, right, there are certain things, certain accommodations that could be made in love for the sake of other believers, but we should not confuse uh, those concessions on conscience with things that make a person right before God. And uh, the reason I, I don't want to go farther into like why these things specifically today is because I think there's probably a, a broader confusion about the gospel that uh, needs to be addressed. Uh, and you know we're we're seeing uh, in the Jerusalem Council, I think a part of our call as believers to defend the gospel that we've received, the the gospel of utter, incomprehensible grace. Paul writes uh, in Galatians chapter 1 to a, a church that's struggling essentially with the same issue. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you, who, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching a gospel to you contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. 
And the, the context of the Jerusalem Council, I think, is uh, what, what is being demanded uh, certainly is circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. But the conflict, I think, at the Jerusalem Council, the heart of the conflict of, at the Jerusalem Council is not so much what the thing is, but the idea that anything can be attached to the grace of God to merit salvation. It doesn't really matter what the thing is. If anything is attached to the grace of God, then Paul's saying, you have a corrupted gospel. And I, I think it's... I think that you would all agree with me. I think that, uh, certainly, I think that I agree with myself that like our highest priority is defending a gospel of grace that's free from any demand to, to earn salvation somehow, right? Like, certainly we would reject the idea that a person could earn their salvation, but again and again in the New Testament, we see uh, Satan cleverly twist things, right? He's not saying, I'm not saying you can earn your salvation. I'm saying you have to believe and kind of earn it, but just a little bit. And that lie gets swallowed all of the time, right? Like, it's clear in this text that Peter is very much on the side of the gospel should go to the Gentiles. It's a gospel of grace and grace alone. Let, yet you read in uh, Galatians that shortly hereafter, Peter gets confused on this and Paul, and Bar Paul has to reject or rebuke both Peter and Barnabas because they're behaving in a way that's confusing the issue. Right? Like, uh, this is a, a very subtle lie and it uh, certainly divides large swaths of Christendom. I think our, our responsibility, our charge is to be incredibly wary of uh, anyone who would attach anything to the grace of God as if that could merit salvation. That, uh, you know, on occasion, I think maybe somebody just is careless with their words, but uh, and, and it's, it's not belying a lack of saving faith, but uh, given the damage that this has caused the church over the years, or churches over the years, I think we have to be very wary of anyone who would attach anything to the grace of God and suggest that that is what makes for salvation. Whether it's baptism, whether it's the day that you worship, whether it's you're circumcised, whether it's uh, attending Mass every week, like anything, anything at all attached to the grace of Jesus Christ is poison to the Gospel. The moment that we accept the notion that our salvation is contingent on something other than repentance and faith, we're corrupting the Gospel of grace. And, and I, I think there is a, a lot of confusion at this point. Right? It, it was the confusion at the Jerusalem Council. This confusion is very much alive today. And uh, I, I know that... Uh, I know that it's a simple way to think about it, I, I, but I think uh, as prominent as this issue is, I think uh, I'm going to share this with you because I think it's probably 
the simplest way to help someone who's not quite getting it. And uh, I've talked to people about this before. I, I call it uh, holy math. So uh, get ready. Uh, right? I, I would suggest to you that the problem at the Jerusalem Council, uh, the problem for a lot of people who profess to be Christians today, is that their understanding of the economy of God is that faith plus works equal salvation. Right? That uh, you can substitute whatever work you want in. At Jerusalem Council, they were saying uh, circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. Uh, some denominations would say faith plus baptism. Uh, other denominations would have a long list of works that you have to uh, perform along with believing in Jesus Christ, to receive salvation. And I would say to you uh, that the Bible is incredibly clear that that is not the path to salvation. That that is a corrupted gospel. That's what Paul is warning about at the beginning of Galatians. In fact, the entire book of Galatians essentially is warning against the notion that faith plus works equal salvation. Right, and I, I would like to, because I believe the, the Bible is typically the best commentary on itself, I would like to read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. Right? And, and note in what Paul says, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We're uh, in our natural state prior to Christ. We're as capable of doing something to please God as a corpse. Right? Like we, we cannot please God. We cannot do anything to merit God's favor. We cannot earn His acceptance. Right? The text hinges on this notion that but God. Right? We were dead and God Himself being rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. And in that text he says twice, it is by grace that we are saved. For by grace you have been saved. Right? He's emphasizing the fact that it's not our ability to earn God's favor. It's not in our ability to earn God's favor. It's by grace that God gives us His favor through faith. It's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works. And I don't, I don't really know that it could be any clearer than that, right? Like, it, it seems 
definitive, yet in the next work, uh, in the next verse, Paul says, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And at that point, uh, I, Paul at least is hinting at, uh, I think, a, another destructive way to think about faith. Right? Sometimes, uh, you know, our response to the idea that faith plus works equals salvation would simply be, no, 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 works don't have anything to do with it. Faith equals salvation. Right? But uh, Scripture, I think, is, is incredibly clear that that is only sometimes true. And hear me very carefully. Faith equals salvation is only sometimes true. There is certainly a sort of faith that does not produce salvation. Right? And I know probably some of you are like, he's lost his mind. Uh, and I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad uh, that you would think on hearing faith does not always produce salvation. Uh, he's crazy. But let me read for you further uh, in the book of James. Uh, and hopefully you'll understand what I mean. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the man who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then he continues in chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And there is uh, an equally popular notion that faith somehow produces salvation and an utter freedom to do whatever I please. Right? That, that God doesn't have any right to tell me what to do with my life, that it doesn't really matter what I do with my life, that I can do whatever I please and God will simply forgive me if I just say Jesus' name. And I think that is absolutely also contrary to the message of the New Testament. Again and again and again there are passages warning us that a person who persists willfully, intently in sin is not an inheritor of salvation. That the answer uh, to a works-based gospel is not uh, a gospel that thinks that works are irrelevant. Right? The issue at the Jerusalem Council, the thing that the, the church has always needed was absolute clarity about the relationship between faith and works. Because works absolutely are not irrelevant, but works are also absolutely not in any way a contribution to salvation. They don't earn anything. That I would suggest to you that if we're thinking in terms of equations, the simplest way to think about the overall message of the New Testament is that genuine faith and faith alone produces salvation, but genuine faith is never found apart from works. Right? That God has created in us a desire to love our neighbors, a desire to love His people, a desire to serve others, a desire to display the fruit of the Spirit. Right? That there are all kinds of things that are the fruits of salvation that we would generally call works. But they are absolutely that. They're the fruit of a salvation that's ours through faith. That is the decision at the Jerusalem Council, and it's the thing that is... Uh, dividing so much of Christendom today. That, that uh, there are all kinds of people who wear the jersey of Christian and are saying faith plus works equals salvation. And they can claim to be whatever team they want to be on, right? but they're not on Jesus' team if they're preaching that gospel. The New Testament is absolutely clear. I think there are also lots of Christians who are saying that uh, faith gives me the freedom to do whatever I want to do with my life, and you know God really isn't all that concerned with what I do or don't do. And I would suggest to you that that also, whatever that person is claiming to be, is not the sort of Christianity we see in the New Testament. That the New Testament is clearly demonstrating that it is faith and only faith that produces salvation. It is faith alone that produces salvation. Right? But that faith, the sort of faith that produces salvation, is never alone. It's always accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit. We see in the Jerusalem Council how they're looking at the work of the Spirit as God's affirmation that what they're seeing is saving faith. And I would suggest the same thing is true for our lives. And I think that the, the fact that there is so much disagreement among Christians about uh, 
about how all this works together really shouldn't be a surprise to us. Right? That, that probably of all the people who profess to be Christians in the world, there are so few that would look at it the way I just described to you is evidence that Jesus was right. Surprise. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree that bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit or bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think we absolutely have to be people who are clearly, compassionately articulating the gospel of grace, but the gospel as we've received it. Not the gospel as we'd like it to be, not the gospel as we imagine it to be, but the gospel that's given to us in the Word of God. That faith and faith Faith alone produces salvation. And that uh, works are an absolutely essential part of a life in Christ, but they're the fruit of faith in Christ. They're not a contribution to our salvation in any sense. I think that's what Paul's saying to us in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The, the, the truth that Paul is pointing us to here is that works that are a result of our salvation, that God receives the credit for those works. They're a fruit of the, His grace in our life. Without the grace of God in Christ, we wouldn't have the ability to do anything good. We wouldn't even have the desire to do anything good. That anything good that we're able to do is a fruit of a, the fruit of salvation received by faith. A salvation that beginning and end comes from God. A salvation that is graciously given by Him through faith alone. And the role of works is only to reveal the salvation that we've received by faith faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we 
thank You for Your grace. God, we thank You that it is, uh, it is possible for us to come to You in prayer. God, that You've given us the desire to come to You in prayer. God, that You have given us more than we can comprehend in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we uh, cling to Him and to Him alone, knowing that He is our appeal. His righteousness is our righteousness by faith and by faith alone. God, You have done everything necessary to secure the salvation of Your people through the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ Jesus. And so, God, we pray that even as our hearts wander, even as we uh, may find ourselves thinking that we in some way can contribute to what you've already done, we pray that that thought would always be stopped in its tracks. Or that we would ever be mindful of the fact that we can do nothing to contribute to the salvation that you've given to us in Jesus Christ, and yet, God, at the same time, be people eager to display what you've done in us through Jesus Christ by walking in obedience, by understanding that you are the Lord of our lives and that our lives are yours and that we're simply stewarding our time, our relationships, our gifts, and that uh, that the greatest worship that we can render is laying our own lives down on the altar and displaying the glory of the gospel to people who are dying apart from Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in His name. Amen.